God and Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would help us to see you aright. We pray, O Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word, which is truth, even the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might see him high and lifted up, that we might give praise to him, that we might love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we might serve him and his church. Father, we pray then that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our Redeemer. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. As we come to this fifth sermon in our series on Genesis, we now turn our attention to the eighth chapter. We've come to the account of Noah and the flood that God used to destroy all of the corruption on the face of the earth. We saw as much last week in our sermon from Genesis chapter 6. We should pause here to to make a very important point, uh, one that's often understated. You know, I grew up learning about the the story of Noah. I was taught to me on a felt board, a wonderful little uh, boat-looking thing, and two animals, you know, it was always two giraffes and two elephants and two dogs, and I don't really know why it were those animals. Maybe they were the easiest to cut out, but I learned as a story, and I think we grew up learning it, oh, the story of the flood, the story of Noah, but I want us to be very careful because this is, nevertheless, the actual account of human history. I'm not making an argument for one particular view of creation or human origins or the age of the earth, per se, but I am saying that we believe God's word to be trustworthy and true. It's what theologians call inerrant or without error. As such, then, we understand that Adam and Eve were real human beings. And God created them just as Genesis depicts. It doesn't explain the mechanism, nor could we probably understand how God could speak things into being. But it does give us detail on the agent who causes creation, namely God himself. And it it gives us detail on the end result, that he created all things good and that he sees everything And it was very good. And then mankind falls into sin and mars corruption. In fact, we see up to the account of Noah that mankind spread throughout all the world. And that corruption filled their hearts and filled creation. And we really believe that the flood is historical. That God had to wipe out all living things except that which he chose to save so graciously on the ark. And you know, we may never find the ark as a point of archaeology. We might never be able to pin it down with GPS coordinates. But it does not shake our faith that what we have in scripture is the truth. And that when God calls the waters of the deep and the windows of heaven to open up, that this great flood wiped out all of iniquity on the earth, and God spared Noah. And it's our understanding then of this that brings us back to these eight people there in the ark. Right in the midst of the story, we see Noah and his wife and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives, these eight people. And God calls the animals to do exactly what he said they would do. They showed up right on time, and seven days all were within the ark, 
And then God made it rain violently for 40 straight days and nights. And after the rain had stopped, even then the waters still prevailed over the whole face of the earth. For 150 days, this deluge continued and continued. And we sit wondering, what will happen to Noah? Would God be gracious? What will happen? And that's where our text picks up this morning, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8. I will read it for us. It's rather lengthy. The first 19 verses of Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts, and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Camp Joy. It's a wonderful ministry of our denomination. It's a week-long camp, and there are several of them during the summer, not only now in the mountains of North Carolina, but also in South Carolina and Florida. And it's a ministry to those with special needs, those with either a mental or physical handicap. They go and they spend a week in the care of someone else. It offers respite care for their, or respite for their caregivers. It also offers a time of sweet fellowship and joy and teaching in the gospel uh, for these people. And I still remember my first time at Camp Joy. 
It's hard for me to believe it was 10 years ago this August. It seems like only yesterday. I remember driving up to Bon Clarken, leaving the foothills where I lived and going up to the mountains in Flat Rock, North Carolina, and what would prove to be uh, quite an unusually hot week. I remember being nervous. I remember wondering, what, what have I gotten myself into? See, I didn't grow up around people with special needs. I had no one in my family, none of my friends at school. There were no people in my church with special needs. And I wondered to myself, am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to do the wrong thing? Am I going to treat them in a way that is unlike the way that Jesus would? You know, strangely, I also remember distinctly thinking, I don't think any of that's going to matter. You see, I I remember being taught that the focus should not be on me or what I think or feel, but rather the focus should be on my special friend, my buddy for that week. You know, I shouldn't be concerned so much with how I'm thinking or feeling, but how they are thinking and feeling. The privilege then would be for me to be with them, to love them where they are and who God has made them to be. And if I needed to, I should help them eat and help them learn the Bible lesson. I should help them play and laugh and dance. I should help them be just who God wants them to be. I learned then that this time was not really about me at all. But it was set apart for them. You know, how does our passage begin this morning? Right at the climax of this flood account, the waters are raging everywhere around the ark. And our text says that God remembers Noah. It begins right in verse 1. God remembering Noah and everything in the ark with him. Now I have a question for you. Did, Did God forget Noah? Had God forgotten those that he had placed in the ark? Well, we believe that God is all-knowing, so that would be an inherent contradiction. Psalm 119 tells us that the sum of God's word is truth. Jesus tells us about himself in John 14, I am the truth. We know then, God can forget nothing. So what is it? What is God doing when he remembers Noah and everything in the ark? I think it's kind of like your birthday. You know, we remember people's birthdays. We set them aside. We make the day special. It doesn't mean that we forget someone's birthday. Now, I've done that, and I've had to confess and repent. But it doesn't mean that we forget that they have a birthday. It means that we choose to make this day special. To set it aside. And that's exactly what we see God doing. Here in the midst of all of the chaos at the very perfect time when everything that was corrupt had been wiped off the face of the earth. God chooses to remember Noah and the animals in the ark. That he had promised to preserve them. To carry them through these waters of destruction. You know, I'll tell you just a a helpful aside. I found, although I need to repent of when I forget my loved one's birthdays, when someone forgets my birthday, I try not to make a big deal out of it. 
I try to tell myself, you know, it's probably more important how they treat me on the other 364 days. It's not all about me, then. It's not all about my special day. But you see, God chooses to make this a very special time for Noah and his family in the ark. He chooses to preserve them. He'd not forgotten. Right in the midst of the drama, at the pinnacle of the flood, at the height of the waters, you might say, God brings them to remembrance. And then our text tells us something very interesting as we move forward. It says that God then makes a wind to blow over the earth and the waters begin to subside. Not only has God remembered them, remembered His promises to them, He also is the first one to act. You know, it wasn't incumbent upon Noah to steer the ark in just the right way. He didn't have to run a gauntlet in order to survive. God preserves them and then God moves. God acts. He sends forth a wind. Now, it's not very apparent, but that that word is the same word that we use for spirit. And you see, the Old Testament reader, the ancient Israelite, would have been hearing this and they would have immediately connected it to God's act in creation. What do we see? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless. It was empty. And God's Spirit hovered over the water. You see, it was a sign of God's creative capacity and activity that He would bring about life, that He would make things good and right. And you see, that's the very promise we see right here. God sending out His Spirit over the face of the earth. It's a signal and a cue that when the waters abate, it wouldn't be left to destruction again. That would be culminated in the covenant God makes with Noah. He sends out His Spirit to indicate He's about to bring life back to the earth. He's about to make things right and good again. Just as we see in the first three days of creation, God brings about the earth and the waters subside as the dry land comes forth. Again, we see that in our text right here. God causes the waters to subside in the power of His creativity, of His Spirit. God is making creation anew, afresh. He sends the Spirit to drive back the void and the destruction and the waters. And we see just as He rested on the seventh day in the very beginning, God causes the ark to come to rest on the mountains of Ararat. You know, I believe that people with special needs have a very powerful way of ministering. You know, whatever their situation may be, they have a unique way of demonstrating to all of us there are certain fundamental, foundational, inescapable things in life. For instance, many folks with special needs, they literally cry out when they are hungry, when they cannot feed themselves. You know, they teach the rest of us, if you don't eat, you die. It's a fundamental reality of life. They don't worry about social taboos like table etiquette. If they're hungry, they cry out. They instinctively and intuitively know that that is a part of life. 
Or maybe we should think about the lesson we learn from our friends and loved ones who are dependent upon medication each and every day to survive. You know, no matter what their condition is, they may not be one with a mental or physical handicap, but their special need demands that they are kept alive by chemicals each and every day. And in no way can they get comfortable with their circumstances. For them, if they miss a medication, it means death. But you know, you and I, we can make life all about the comforts, the American dream. It's very easy for us, if we're not careful, to forget that it is God's sustaining hand in our life, keeping us alive each and every day. This is a profound way in which they can minister to us. We'll look at our passage, what does Noah do next? The ark comes to a full and complete stop on the mountains. He unbuckles his seatbelt and gets ready for the next ride. No. The ark comes to a rest and he waits patiently. He sends out two birds. Now, I don't have enough time in this sermon to explain to you the difference here, what's going on in the use of these two birds. You can come ask me after the sermon if you'd like to know, but... Suffice it to say that both of these birds are indicating the activity of the Holy Spirit, albeit in different ways. And Noah sends out these two birds, but why does he do this? I think he sends them out because he has literally been inundated for the last eight and a half months. He's been sailing through the most violent storm that this earth has ever seen, bar none. He's been taught day in and day out that the only thing keeping him alive is the ark. Now, wouldn't you be a bit reluctant to leave the ark if you'd been on it for eight and a half months, if you'd you'd gotten that rhythm of life down that, should I go overboard, there's no one there to save me? He's patient. He sends out these birds. You know, God didn't have to call out to Noah. He didn't have to instruct him upon how to build this ark. He didn't have to wait patiently on him as the ark was constructed, as we talked about last week. He didn't have to offer him this protection. He didn't have to keep the lions and the other predators calm while at sea. Basically, if it were not for God, then Noah and everyone on the ark would be dead. So he recognizes that it's it's much safer to be in the ark with God than to be out in the elements, even for one day, without God's presence. This is why he carefully uses these birds to send them out, to see if God had prepared creation again, to see if God was ready that he might go out of the ark. And he does this because he knows ultimately that he's created to be on dry land. He's created to be out cultivating a garden, keeping it, filling the earth and subduing it. Brothers and sisters, I think this this calls us back to what we talked of last week. Ultimately, last week we talked about God's provision in the ark of His presence. And ultimately that was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. That through the Lord Jesus, God carries us through the storm of life and sin. He provides for us a way back into His presence And we have to ask ourselves the question then, again, do we know this Jesus? He's the only one who can ever save anyone 
from the corruption of the world, from the corruption of the sin in their heart. And Noah's demonstrating then, it's better to be found in the Lord Jesus than to face even a day of God's judgment outside of His presence. That's why I think special needs ministry of our church is so vital. You know, all of us can easily fall into the trap of this age, this age of wealth, this age of abundance. We can get comfortable living life within our means and by our own power. You know, we all seek comfort in different ways. We might have a lot of money, we might have a lot of resources in order to build and construct a life of comfort and ease. Some of you might be creatures of habit. You may have your routines down and and no one can break them. You like to have every day be exactly how you want it to be. Now, if you're one of those people, I implore you, please come and teach me how to do that. Often I find my life to be very chaotic. But you see, we all seek comfort in different ways. We all construct idols in which we try to determine our lives. We try to orchestrate and organize and compartmentalize everything. You know, if we aren't careful, we could very quickly think that we're not utterly dependent upon the Lord Jesus each second of every day. But for the grace of God, you are sitting in these pews right here, right now. You and I, in fact, could not hear this sentence being finished, could not take another breath unless it were God's provision at work to sustain us, to keep us in the Lord Jesus. And you know, we're not careful we can get too comfortable with all of this, the life that we build, and ultimately we can get too comfortable with our sin. I think this is precisely where our loved ones with special needs can minister to us the most. You see, these brothers and sisters are exactly who God wants them to be in this age. But their bodies are still broken. Either mentally or physically, they are broken. And God wants to renew and to recreate them whole, to give them eternal life in the Lord Jesus. You know, as as an aside, this is why we so doggedly seek after cures of any sort. This is why we pursue the best courses of treatment because God's ultimate aim is to preserve life, to bring it to the full in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this age, under the fall, they're still broken and they confront us with the fact every time we see them, every time we love on them, every time they love on us, that you and I are broken. Now, we're not broken in the same ways. But we're all broken by sin. And spiritually speaking then, we all need the cleansing of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all need His recreative power to be made new creations in the Lord Jesus Christ. To be delivered through on the ark of Christ until He should return. And the earth literally will be made again without sin. And we will walk in the midst of God in the cool of the day in His very presence. And there will be no more dying, nor death, nor deformity, nor sin, nor crying, nor tear, nor any such thing. 
I still remember my first camper. His name was Zach Brandon. God created him to be this amazing 40-something-year-old man with, with Down syndrome. And I think I sweated more that week than I had in the previous 16 years of my life. You see, Zach had a joy and an exuberance for living that, that bubbled over into everything that he did. I can only describe it as as kind of a state of of hurried ecstasy. He was so happy with everything that he was doing at all times. Running, dancing. You know, he taught me that week how to dance with reckless abandon. He didn't care what anyone thought of him, how they would judge him or what their opinion was, and he taught me to dance in the same way. He He also taught me, I think without a shadow of a doubt, that that dancing is very much a cardiovascular activity. He, he never stopped. He never stopped. But even more than this, I think he taught me about God's love. You know, Zach didn't know me before that week. I'd never worked Camp Joy. I was so nervous. And as soon as Zach met me, he came and threw a huge, very awkwardly long hug on me. And he said, I love you. He didn't know me. I had done nothing for him. And yet he loved me. He constantly asked me, how are you doing, buddy? Is everything all right? Can I do anything for you? It was sheer joy and love. And I think this is what it means to take comfort in the Lord Jesus. You can do nothing for God. I don't care how often, I do care how often you come to church, but I don't care how often you come to church. It's not going to earn God's favor. God is not going to love you more because you check the box of Sunday school or you serve on this committee or you do this or that. Those are all good things to do. We should strive to be in the midst of the body, loving one another as we seek to be built up into Him who is the head, even Jesus Christ. But that doesn't earn God's favor. God does not love you more. God comes to you in your sin while you have yet to know Him, and He throws His arms around you, and He just keeps holding on. And you know, you give God the nice, polite pat on the back. Okay, I'm ready to end the hug. And He keeps holding on, because He knows that you need to be in His presence. He knows that only in the Lord Jesus can you be cleansed of your sin. You know, this caused Zach to sing. He loved to sing songs to Jesus. Now, by the world standards, I can tell you, he had a terrible voice. But I guarantee you that it was such a sweet sound to his Savior. You know, that might teach us a thing or two here. You know, a lot of times we think, well, you know, I'm, just, I'm not the singing type, Pastor. I, just, I don't sing in church. You know, that's, I kind of get uncomfortable when I sing. Or, you know, at, at best, I make other people around me uncomfortable with my voice. God says, I don't care about your comfort. I want you. And I've done so much for you. It should cause you to be joyous and to sing to me. I don't care what you sound like. I want you to move out of your comfort zone. I want you to sing to God. You know, I think that raises a very important question as we come and bring our time to a close I wonder if you've ever considered what it means to be comfortable. We say that in passing a lot, you know. 
that's out of my comfort zone, this or that activity or this or that thing or that maybe this or that person makes me a little uncomfortable. I'm not comfortable. You know, I think a lot of times we just use that as an excuse for certain things we don't want to do. You know, that's out of my comfort zone. I don't really like to sing and worship. That's out of my comfort zone. I don't want to serve on this. That's out of my comfort zone. God didn't make me that way. Let me tell you something. You want to know what's out of my comfort zone? Wiping the backside of a 40-year-old man as he tries to tell you a knock-knock joke. Now, that's out of my comfort zone. You want to know what else is out of my comfort zone? Going and meeting a neighbor that I've never met. Trying to love them. Trying to get to know them. Trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's out of my comfort zone. You want to know what's in my comfort zone? Jesus. And that's what our passage teaches us. That's what Noah teaches us. The only thing you need in order to take comfort in this life is the Lord Jesus. God comes to Noah again in the the last paragraph of our chapter. You see that God moves first. God goes out by His Holy Spirit and prepares the land. God moves first. He comes to Noah. Noah had been given instructions. He'd been brought into the ark. The Lord Himself shut them in, signifying His protection. The Lord calls them to safely ride the waves. The Lord calls them safely to come to rest in the mountains. God causes the waters of your life and the flood to subside. He cleanses out the corruption. He clears out the destruction. And God Himself comes and says, Now Noah, go out. Noah didn't have to wonder about birds coming back to him. God Himself comes and speaks. Beloved, God Himself comes and speaks to us in His Word. And He says, Where you are, I will be also. Now go. If you have the provision of the Lord Jesus, if you are in Christ, although some things may be uncomfortable, God gives us the power to do anything for Him. The safest place to be, in other words, is where God calls us to be. And He calls us to go out and to make disciples. Why does He do this? Why does God cause Noah to go out? Because if He doesn't, humanity ends. He says, go out. Take all of the things that have the breath of life in them and go out and be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. You know, we just celebrated the 4th of July. I love a good holiday with fireworks, I just have to confess. But, you know, God didn't call, He didn't call us to go out just to the folks that look like us. He didn't call us to go out just to the folks in Rock Hill. He didn't call us just to go out to America to make this nation better. He called us to go out to the ends of the earth. That through the families of the earth, they would be blessed. You see, that's where we're going. That's what Barry will preach on next week, the call to Abram. Abram, I will bless you, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That cannot happen unless you see the very last, the very last phrase in our passage. They went out from the ark by families. It doesn't matter if you have a family or if you don't. I don't. 
but I have God's family. And we are called to go out and to be fruitful. We're called to go out in God's presence, teaching others to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can tell you, beloved, that will not be comfortable. But God will be with you, and He will be with me. And it will be the greatest joy that we can ever take part in. You've got to come out of your own ark. You can't build your life. You can't protect yourself. You've got to be in the ark of God's presence. You've got to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He has called each of us to go out and to make disciples.